Now, are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then we'll begin. This is Martin Newell, and I am doing my TARDIS year and album. Whether it's strictly a year or not, because it kind of cuts in between 1967 and 68, but for the sake of the argument, we'll say it's 1967, and the album is The Who's Sell Out, The Who's third and rather strange album, which time has been very kind to, actually, because um, in England, at least, not a lot of people took notice of it. But there was one particular 14-year-old boy then living in South London who was listening to it. And this was the first track, Armonia, City in the Sky. City in the Sky, to my 14-year-old ears at least, sounded strange. Not just strange, exotic. The voice seemed slightly sped up. That was something I first noticed in uh, the Beatles' Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. The voice was slightly sped up and, and distanced, but with Armonia City in the Sky, it was something else. And the noises were very, very psychedelic. I'd come to recognise them later. Um, having experimented with various types of uh, colour-producing aspirins, as I used to call them. 
But uh, the song wasn't even written by by my then idol, Pete Townsend. The song was written by somebody called Speedy Keen. Speedy Keen was a rock musician, but he also did a bit of driving. He'd gone to school. He'd gone to, I think it was acting grammar with Pete Townsend. <laughs> I later met him in a studio called Ridge Farm when I was in my early 30s. And... I was introduced to him as just speedy and by the engineer at the studio where I was working with Captain Sensible. And I said, you're not speedy keen, are you? And he said the same. <laughs> and I said, you wrote the first track on the first album I ever bought. Because Speedy Keen actually was quite a distinguished songwriter. He'd written Something in the Air, which was a massive worldwide hit for a band called Thunderclap Newman in 1968, 69 sort of time. And um, I don't think many people who had that knew that he'd written Armonia City in the Sky, but I did. And I said, yeah, you wrote Armonia in the Sky, and I claimed my five pounds. I said, I bet not many people tell you that. And he said, you're only the third. <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, yeah, so I, I actually got to meet him. But Armonia City in the Sky is a strange kind of, I would say definitely LSD-driven track, with Pete Townsend rapidly playing catch-up with Jimi Hendrix, who he'd, whose uh, guitar pyrotechnics he'd seen some months before. And uh, you, you can hear these these whirls and swishes, and, and it gallops along with Roger Daltrey's voice uh, quite sped up, really. And um, it's, it's just a great beginning to an album. Except it's not exactly the beginning, because the whole album, the gimmick of the album, was it's full of like Radio London commercials, actual Radio London commercials, and things that sounded like radio commercials for Radio London, but made by The Who. What's for tea, darling? <laughs> darling, I said, what's for tea? What's for tea, daughter? But this next one is called Marianne with the shaky hands. Make of that what you will.
As a South London schoolboy attending a massive great school called, I think 2,000 people it had, it was called The Elliot. It was in Putney. Uh, one of my classmates was Pierce Brosnan, but he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't James Bond then, so we just called him Irish. Nice guy, always had a nice blazer, and, you know, just, he was just a good lad. I don't even know if he smoked, but we, if there had been a school cigarette, it would have been players number six, because that's what we all smoked in the school box. Me, Gary Smith, Dave Ward, Hedley Pierre, uh, Robert O'Kell, who was in there but didn't smoke, and my great mate, Joe Robinson, who became a journalist. Uh, and at one time we were probably writing for the same paper it's just I never met him because I never went into the office um, that's another story friendly comprehensive school w what the educationists would call a bog standard school except it wasn't it yielded a surprising amount of pop music luminaries and sports stars so if you if for popular culture I think the Elliot was probably tops and I, I liked going there, except uh, we all tended to leave at 15 because we wanted to go out and um, do whatever it was we were going to do. Whether I learned anything there, I don't know. But I certainly didn't get bullied there because my value was that I knew all the pop songs that came out. I went out and bought smash hits and I'd play these songs in the school box while catching players number six. And uh, it kind of, you know, you didn't pick up the cabaret. That's a lesson I learned very early. If you make jokes and, and, and play Ichiku Park in the school box, the bad guys didn't touch you. They thought you were great, even though you were a weed with a pudding basin haircut. So the next track here, I think, is probably Odorono. This was actually a commercial which Pete Townsend wrote. It's a whole little ballad. It's a little opera about... Uh, uh, and he was good at little operas, that Townsend was. It was about um, a, a someone who, who was a budding showbiz star, but then when the impresario came backstage to talk to her, uh, her deodorant had let her down. She should have used odorona. Oh, no. 
sound of wonderful Radio London. Now, The Who Sell Out, which was The Who's third album, was a very, very strange construct for someone who was, uh, you know, a pure pop fan. I liked The Who the move, the small faces and all the rest of it. But they had it wasn't quite a concept, but it was very weird and probably influenced by all kinds of smokables and, and, and other stuff and, and stay-awake pills and, and, and stay-awake pills with, with colourful benefits. I don't know. But definitely it was affected by that. But it was a very strange thing for me because I hadn't had any of that stuff. I just really liked the sounds and I would have liked it with or without, you know. It was also Signal because I bought it with my own money. I got to 14 and I, you know, you've got to that point where you didn't want your parents choosing your clothes or your music for you. And I actually saved up for this thing, almost, uh, you know, secretly got bits of money from there and bits of money until I had the requisite, I think it was probably about £2.50. Uh, I can't do that in modern money, but it was, two, it was you know, it was £2.10. shillings. And I got this thing and I brought it home and laid it reverently beside the dresser so I could see it when I woke up in the morning and played it on a, a, a sort of plastic one-piece record player that probably put out about half a watt, I should imagine. The Who Sell Out was released, it says here in my reference book, on the 15th of December. I seem to remember getting it a bit earlier than that. And I may well have done because the record stores may have had it. It wasn't released till the 15th officially, but I bought it and and I just played it back to back the whole time. I lived and breathed it. Now, I first noticed The Who when I came back to England in April of 1966. And uh, there was my granddad watching Ready Steady Go. And I used to sit with him. He was an old bus driver, very witty, liked music. And uh, we'd sit um, watching this programme. And The Who came on. And the first thing that struck me was the drummer, Keith Moon. He looked very, very animated, like a sort of cross between an overexcited boy and a puppy. Bounced up on his kit, hammering the things. He, he really showed off. You know, a, a band where you notice the drummer first is very weird, especially if that band also has Pete Townsend in, because Pete Townsend is pretty visual as well. So I soon thought, who are these guys? And then I heard I'm a Boy... And uh, by the time I'd started checking out other singles, because in those days you could go around to... There's a place, various shops that used to sell ex-jukebox singles. My ex-jukebox, they'd only been on the jukebox for four weeks because the turnover of pop singles was so fast in those days. You could go and buy the singles. So if you couldn't afford your six and eight for a new single, you just waited four or five weeks and you got it for two or three bob secondhand. The only thing is they... The centre had been punched out so that for, to accommodate the, the jukebox spindle or whatever, not the spindle, you know, the, the nub that you stick the record on. So you had to buy your own little insert. But once you got a couple of them, you could push it into the hole and then you hate presto, you could play it on your record player. But the one that I got, probably the first one I got, was Pictures of Lily, which was May of 1967. And by June, I'd, I'd got it and I just played it all the time. And... I recently learned that the Who's album, The Who's Sell Out, was originally, its title was going to be Who's Lily. The next track was one of my favourites and quite a thing for a young man of 14 with his first guitar to try and wrap his fingers around a fretboard. It was called Tattoo. And again, it was about youthful ritual slightly rude there's two boys growing up and they're trying to discern what it is that makes a man a man so they decide to go and get a tattoo each and um the father beats them for it the mother likes the tattoo because one of the boys has had mother tattooed on his arm i mean it was a whole thing about pete townsend you didn't didn't get those like you know i love you you love me now let's go and have a cup of tea kind of songs you got sometimes really screwed up little operas about you know genuine youthful passions and and um and faults and and all, and all the stumbles stumbling blocks you're going to find with youth and so this record hit me right at the time everything was happening to me i'm going to describe the stuff that's that happens above the waist but i'm not going to go into anything about the hamsel below the waist but that was kind of some kind of a 
Chernobyl situation going on down there. And then in, in my head, impossible thoughts of romance and, and meeting girls. And the two weren't really hooked up. So there's incredible confusion in the middle of all this album by The Who is playing. Um, I hear that the the next track which I hear is Our Love Was, which is about some impossible cerebral love. Our love was this and our love was that. And and incredibly, uh, say it, esoteric, I guess, in its way. Yeah. Love, 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 love
Listening to Box 39 Red Button Tardis here on Cone Radio 106.6 FM. And this week, Martin Newell meets up with himself in 1967. We had a copy of Revolver which I had first heard in, in a jungle hill station where my, my, my dad was stationed in Malaya. So imagine I associate Revolver with the jungle hills of Malaya. Uh, but that's another story. That's, a, that's quite another TARDIS. But I was, I was well-schooled in the Beatles. They were still a great mystery to me. But Pete Townsend and The Who and their way of going about doing music was completely different it was like going onto another planet after after having got used to mars you're suddenly on saturn power chords he had and well i guess he was the inventor of the power chord really he between him and dave davis they probably invented it so lots of twang quite a lot of jangle and um it's still the guitarist that I am today those those things were founded on me listening to george harrison and pete townsend so when I heard this one, this was the flagship single. I can see for miles. It was described at the time, and I remember this, by Penny Valentine, the most distinguished uh, pop writer at the time, who wrote for Disc and Music Echo, which was the, the go-to pop paper for me. She described it as like eight electric trains all going through a tunnel together, and, and I still think it sounds like that. It's an amazing bloody single, it really is. Miles and miles 
bridge of my trust in you and I was so far away I saw you holding lots of other guys and now you've got the nerve to say That you still want me, well that's as may be But you gotta stand trial, because all the while I can see for miles and miles At some point around this time, after a dispute with my dad whereby he stopped what was laughingly described as my pocket money, I went out and got a paper round so that I could make my own sartorial decisions and my own music decisions. These were the only things that were important to me. So what I can remember is the freezing streets of of uh, Balham and Clapham, where my paper round was, and uh, you know, a bike with about one brake and no gears and a sort of carrier on the back and taking the Sunday papers because a Sunday paper round got you seven and six whereas a day paper round only got you five bob but in half term I could do uh, six days at five bob and um, it was nearly enough to buy an album and uh, you know, get some new guitar strings and things like that so the paper round I remember and the pain of it and then I would go to school sometimes um, sometimes he said <laughs> freezing cold these songs would be in my head I would take my guitar to school some days. Mr Chamberlain, the games teacher, once said, if I hear you playing that thing in a change room, I will cut the strings, all right? Because he was a bit of a hard note. Games teachers were in those days. One of our games teachers was John Taylor of England. Now the, um, he might have been Welsh, actually, but he, he played for a rugby team. And once, when there was some lads having a fight in, in the, uh, under the podium... A serious fight. He came shoulder charging through and, you know, you didn't dick around with Mr. Taylor. He was, you know, tough as. I think you had to be tough in those days in a big South London comprehensive. But um, occasionally one of the boys would chin a games teacher, but it was rare and you certainly wouldn't have done it to either Mr. Chamberlain. Who you got the impression we didn't know, but he might have been in touch of, in charge of a tank division or something like that, Mr. Taylor, who we knew because we occasionally saw him on telly playing rugby, international rugby. So, yeah, yeah, you didn't, you didn't muck around with the games teachers. So, <laughs> I think going through all that, 
the songs that I was hearing were well there was there was relax um, and there was this one I can't reach you I can't reach you the Charles Atlas course with dynamic tension can turn you into a beast of a man Now you will have noticed with these tracks spinning by that there have been the adverts in there. There's something else. Some of them, as I said earlier, genuine Radio London commercials. There was a little bit of, not exactly litigation, but Pete Townsend had written this spiffing song about Odorono. And I think one of the Who's managers, uh, probably Kit Lambert, had had rung up Odorono and said, maybe we could get some money off you for that. And um, Odorono... That the manufacturers told them where to go I think was the result these stories are very dark and I try not to include them because what I've learned subsequently about the making of this album I wanted to keep it out of the TARDIS because I wouldn't have seen them in the TARDIS I was 14 as far as I was concerned I was just listening to a blooming great LP which I played back to back several times a day and, and really knew and I didn't know any of this stuff what I also didn't know which I can impart here, is that it turns out years and years later, I read it was it was uh, Roger Daltrey's favourite album. And I wouldn't have put him down for that because I always thought he was, uh, well, he was certainly one of the, the more grounded of the Who. And as their story has gone on, you, you see him speaking, you think, 
This is a really great bloke because what you hear is that Pete's Pete's Townsend, yeah, he's he's an intellectual and all the rest of it. But sometimes he's a little bit muddled, and and you don't you you get his point of view on everything. Keith Moon, who I now realise was actually mentally ill, he had stuff he had stuff wrong with him. He had he had what they call issues, um, sort of like I do in some ways, but far more so, you know. Very, what's that thing? ADHD, HDD, you know, attention hyperactivity disorder. Great drummer, but you know, you, you wouldn't want to live in a house with him for a very long time. But God bless him, because uh, you know, he was. I, I think he was just a great rock drummer, the best, the best, and very funny. Probably, as I said, unless you were living with him. John Entwistle was a stunning musician. Pete Townsend still marvels over him, but but no one really gives Roger Daltrey the credit for just being this great anchor. I mean, he remembers things. And when you see him or listen to him being interviewed now about records, he's the guy who remembers the stuff and he has a really objective view. I think people don't realise he was a, he was also a grammar school boy. He was just a bit of a hard nut. He came up a bit hard and he could uh, have a serious fight, even though he was diminutive in size. And um, I, the who... What the... The Who appealed to boys who, who liked a bit of toughness. You know, some of the other musicians you saw, they they looked great, but you just thought, you wouldn't dick around with The Who, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't want to have a fight with them. I think they were a bit like the Stranglers in that respect. Because, you know, The Who are, are, are a kind of a boys' band. That That's all there is to it. And there, I think they had a, a, a big following of, of young and confused boys like myself. Hidden Away on the Who Sell Out are two utterly stunning songs. One of them, Silas Stingy by John Entwistle, a bass player without parallel. He did something with the bass that uh, I don't think anyone had done before or has done since. He filled in frequencies that uh, you know reached parts that other basses don't reach, is all I will say here well, before I get to muse about the whole thing. Once upon a time there lived an old miser man by the name of Silas Dindy. He carried all his money in a little black box, which was heavy as a rock with a big bad lock. All the little kids would shout when Silas was about. Money, 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 man, money, money, man. There goes Minji Stingy. Money, 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 money
And then there's Sunrise. The story behind Sunrise is that Pete Townsend was apparently told um, by his mum he never wrote a love song. And so he did write this love song. And what a love song it is. It's just him and an acoustic guitar. I think somebody was uncomfortable about having it on the record. Possibly Keith Moon didn't really like it, but then it doesn't have any drums on it. The final track on the album is Rael, parts one and two. And when you listen to them, uh, if you don't know this album very well, chances are you'll know Tommy, but maybe not this album so well, you'll hear just the beginnings, the little seeds, the twinkle in the eye, <laughs> which became Tommy. That's it. But he'd Townsend had already heading towards the writing of operas, encouraged, I think, by Kit Lambert, who was the son of Constant Lambert, the composer. And I think never really was a, a frustrated composer himself and tried to use Pete Townsend as a, as a kind of amanuensis. He was forever getting Pete to to reach out. And he, and he introduced Pete to Purcell. And you can hear some of the chord changes and certainly the descending basses and they there was a baroque element to the who and you'll hear it all over their work especially their early work uh, they are extraordinary musicians they didn't get big and they, are, they don't remain big 
for nothing you know they're actually really good but this was me aged 14 listening to this absorbing all this stuff and not really knowing or, or understanding why I, I, I could probably say that between the Beatles and the Who they were my music teachers and anyone who likes my band the cleaners from Venus say so I got my my first lessons about writing songs and not being afraid to go out on a limb and and and, and write something a little bit strange and and to tell tell a story far more so than someone like dylan who just you know kind of yeah i know he's great and everybody loves him and that but i've always found him really boring you know i think pete townsend and lennon mccartney are, are much better you get the whole of english pop music contained among these guys you know so
that really the who sell out which i listened to when i was 14 um cycled round on my paper round with these great songs going around my head and went through all the confusion of, t- of my early teenage years and the last innocence of childhood was anchored for me on on this album and i would urge that you got hold of the yeah, you know, the original one. You can now buy boxed sets with all the bits and pieces and the stuff. But if you just listen to the simple album, it's about like thirteen tracks, you know, and one or two spoof commercials. It's it's a it's a good night's listening, and that's it. That is Martin Newell's TARDIS. Red Button is a Guppy production for Colne Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. For those that don't know already, every Thursday at 8 p.m. here on Corn Radio, there's Box 39, a magazine of conversation, music, humor, and local interest stories listened to by people across Northeast Essex and in 203 countries around the world. Box 39 investigates. That's right, the Box 39 investigates team looks into how local schools have given up warning our children about split infinitives and dangling modifiers. Box 39 will expose the grammatical cowardice that is undermining our mother tongue with linguistic permissiveness and pervasive sloppiness as teachers simply lose control. Coming soon on Cone Radio. 